Hello there and welcome to the Made for Love podcast, a Catholic podcast from the USCCB asking the important questions about the call to love, such as... So is 23-year-old Kara, if she's meeting Ethan Hawke on a train, is there any chance you would want to keep the conversation going with him? Uh... I'm your host, Andrew Bonapane, and today we are devoting the whole episode to kicking off a trilogy of movies, the first of which is called Before Sunrise. Kara Bach, thanks for joining us. Hey, hey, good to be here. Before Sunrise is a 1995 movie directed by Richard Linklater and starring Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy, and its sequels are Before Sunset and Before Midnight, collectively the Before Trilogy which were filmed and take place nine years apart from each other. So unless something goes catastrophically wrong in one of the next two episodes, we'll be doing an episode on each one of the movies. So in this episode, we're talking about the first one, Before Sunrise, which takes place in Vienna and features basically only two characters, Jesse, an American guy traveling abroad, played by Ethan Hawke, and Celine, a French woman played by Julie Delpy, who is also traveling in Vienna. I forget what her reason is. The movie takes place over the period of less than a full day, where people meet and develop feelings for each other. And it's basically I like just... I a better summary than that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This movie shouldn't work because it's basically just two people talking and walking around Vienna. It's like the best first date you never went on. Yeah, so uh, I've seen this movie a couple of times before, and Carrie, this is your first time, so what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. I think part of it is because, well, I mean, I'm a romantic. If you've ever had an experience of like, I had that one day where I did this like really crazy thing, and it was awesome. I feel like there's a little bit of nostalgia. Maybe even if you haven't done that, there's like a wistfulness for a desire for that. Yeah. So it's funny, at the very beginning of the movie, he talks about how he like wants to basically pitch a show where you like are watching somebody's day for 24 hours and like all the mundane stuff that they do. And in a way, I feel like this movie is like the most interesting version of his movie or like TV show pitch where it's like, what's the most interesting 24 hours you could possibly have? And it's like you meet a person on a train and basically spend the day wandering a foreign city and falling in love. Yeah. Who doesn't want to do that? And I think your tagline of like the best first date you've ever been on is like a really apt one. That was that's a good way to pitch that to somebody in an elevator. I may be a little biased because my husband and I did go on like a twelve hour first date, <laughs> like <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> that was not our plan. It was one of those sort of like I mean not quite like this. This had a very clear bounded endpoint, but one of those things where you're just like, okay, well we've got time. Like, what do we do next? <laughs> Let's keep this rolling. Let's just keep going. Like, we're having a good time. Why not? Yeah. It sort of has that feel of you're just, you've still got time. Like, what are we going to do? So the the reason I picked this, Kara, was because it's been nine years since the third movie came out. And it was nine years after the second movie came out, which itself was nine years after this movie came out. So it's been 27 years, which normally is not a meaningful anniversary, but the way these movies work... It is, just because they do nine years. And I don't think, I think they ended it at three. They're not planning on doing another one. That was it. Well, I'll tell you at the end of the third one if I think that's a good idea or not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So in the first movie, they meet on a train to Vienna. And they 
are complete strangers. They're both reading different books, but that's not really how they meet. They meet because there's another married couple, I think they're married, another married couple on the train arguing with each other in German. Now, keep in mind, Jesse is American. He speaks English only. Celine is French, but she speaks English extremely well. And so they they see this German couple fighting. And the way that you sometimes do with a stranger when there's an odd event in public, you sort of try and relate to them like, you know, you kind of want to know if somebody else thought that was weird too. And so this is the first exchange, Kara. And out of context, I think this sounds really strange. Jesse asks Celine, excuse me, do you have any idea what they were arguing about? I'm sorry, do you speak English? So right off the bat, he's asked her two questions in a row without waiting for an answer for the first question. And then her answer, again, out of context is, yeah, no, I'm sorry, my German is not very good. Already we have complications in the world of language and communication because we have an English speaker asking a French speaker, do you know what they were talking about? And then asking her if, if she speaks English, and she answers about her German. And she also answers, yeah, no. So <laughs> there's already Which a lot of... Which extre- like, she must be extremely good at English that she... Uh, I mean, they explain this, but yeah, it's like you, you know the nuances of English enough to answer that correctly. <laughs> and she does. So she says, yeah, no, which... Strictly speaking, you would think would be contradictory, but you know in context that she's answering yeah to the second question, do you speak English? And no to the first question, do you have any idea what those Germans were arguing about? So already there are chances for their communication to have screwed up and it didn't go awry somehow. And that's sort of the magic of talking to a stranger even across nationalities. I think what the movie's doing here is it's raising a problem, which is men and women have difficulty communicating. And it uses the difference in language between them as sort of an example of that, sort of like a, like kind of a metaphor. And the only reason they are able to communicate is because she speaks his language better than he speaks hers. (laughs) Extremely appropriate. I uh, can confirm. Right. Like that seems fitting for how men and women relate in real life, right? Well, also to that point, the fact that she does understand him, you know, out of the gate, I think is an appropriate kind of metaphor for that first jolt of like, ooh, there's potential with mm-hmm. a person. Like, you know, when you see somebody, you know, quintessentially like across the bar, like across right. the room or whatever, and you sort of hope for a good opening interaction. And this was sort of the embodiment of that moment of like, oh, oh, they do get it. And the fact that they're both like, eyeing each other and reading a book, that kind of like heart quickening of like, oh my gosh, this person is like interesting. Okay. <laughs> and interested. I think it's the kind of ideal meet cute, right? Where it's right. like, oh, there's something that sort of gives you a hint that it's not just like, oh, we're two boring people who think that the other person is attractive. It's kind of, there's something there that gives you, like fans the flame of hope in a more interesting way. Yeah. And it sort of feeds... Uh, temptation to something that gets talked about in Love and Responsibility, which is that sentimentality angle. It creates the potential for the illusion of feeling a certain way about a person and that they might feel a certain idealized way about you. I mean, this entire movie is set on (laughs) sentimentality. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. But the twist with this movie coming out in the mid-90s is that there's a very high degree of self-awareness of these characters. They're both kind of postmodern, and they understand that illusory nature of sentimentality. Yeah. They kind of reference it at different points in framing up the idea. I mean, 
essentially they, after this sort of initial conversation, they then go into the dining car so that they can have a more natural chat. And he brings up specifically like, this is your chance to see what happens with that guy that maybe you met on a train. And if you don't take the opportunity, you'll wonder what would have happened forever. And I think you also kind of know that like, and if it doesn't work out, like whatever, it was some like weird 24 hours that you spent with this random dude. Yeah. And so this is his pitch, basically, like, He's had this great interaction with a stranger that he's attracted to, and she seems to be reciprocating. It's time to get off the train, but he would like to keep going because he has nothing to do until his flight the following morning when he has to leave at sunrise. The title of the movie is Before Sunrise. So his pitch to her is basically, let's just keep getting to know one another. Let's wander around Vienna. And so the rest of the movie is them walking around Vienna until sunrise. I gotta say, I think in 2022, this movie could not be made because everybody would be like, this guy is definitely going to become a serial killer or like, you're definitely going to get assaulted. Correct. (laughs) There's no way that you just like get off of a train with some random stranger for a day. Correct. She would rightly be texting like five of her friends like, I am in Vienna. There is a strange American here. How do I get away from him? Do you know anybody in Vienna I can claim to have to go see? Yeah, definitely. (laughs) This definitely this takes place out of in a totally different era. I would yes. love to have some like twenty two year old currently watch this and have their minds just blown. <laughs> like perhaps Ethan Hawke's own daughter, who's on yeah. Stranger Things. Oh, that's right. I didn't realize we went right from Stranger Things featuring Maya Hawke to Before Sunrise featuring her dad Ethan Hawke. Yeah, yeah. Hawke family come attempt to philosophize about love with us. I'd take the interview if they granted it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they get off the train. And then they start wandering. The next sort of vignette I have was about them talking about their parents and what their parents want them to be. And that kind of Mm. idea of pushing back against other people's expectations for you. Yeah. It's revealed later that like his parents are divorced and he's sort of felt the wound of always having been told that he was like a surprise, like unwanted kid. Yeah, and I think that feeds into his cynicism a lot. Yeah, it's like nobody wanted me anyway. And it's kind of interesting because she, on the other hand, like her parents are still together and they're like so supportive that she kind of resents that. Right, because she doesn't have any like thing to hold on to to level as a grievance against them. Yeah. She doesn't have any rocks to throw. Like she kind of acknowledges that like I'm a teenager or like, you know, she's in her young 20s or whatever. It's Mm -hmm. like I want to be angry and rebel And, like, feel like it was my parents' fault, but my parents are great, so I can't feel bad about it. It's, I mean, way more insightful than your average 23-year-old would ever be. Mm. Um, Granted, they do do give a little hint at the beginning that she's, like, going to Sorbonne, which is, like, extremely elite university in Paris. So, which he doesn't seem to pick up on the fact that that's, he's like, cool, you're going to school. That's, yeah. I think, I think he was like, oh, I... I can pretend like I know what that is. Yeah, definitely. They kind of have contrasting backgrounds, and yet Mm -hmm. they both feel a sort of, I need to carve out my own desires for my life. He explicitly says, I could never get very excited about other people's ambitions for my life. Yeah. And at the same time, she resents the fact that every, I won't call it fanciful thing, but like if she was interested in something, she's like, oh, I want to be a writer. And her father would turn it into a profession. It's like, oh, you're going to be a journalist. Yeah. 
I want to be an actor or newscaster. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is kind of the just like insightful point about a human nature and like being a teenager and like kind of needing to forge your own identity on your own terms. But also that idea, I mean, from a theological standpoint, I think that there's something to be said about the desire to discover like what we would know to be God's plan for our life as opposed to just my parents told me I'm going to be a doctor. So I guess I'm going to be a doctor. Yeah, they do exhibit some like inklings or like some sort of desire to discern in in a way that we would recognize in a Catholic framework of like actual spiritual discernment, but they don't really have the vocabulary to do it just because of how they've been raised. Yeah. Which is tricky for her wanting to rebel because she mentions that her parents in the 60s did rebel. They were part of the sexual revolution against what she says is their like conservative Catholic upbringing. And she can't do that because she's in the aftermath of that rebellion. So if she were to rebel against that, what would she be doing? other than reverting to what came before. It's funny you mention that. I'm not going to necessarily recommend the show. It's like extremely violent and sexual, but the TV show The Americans has, which they're undercover Russian spies posing as like a quaint American couple. Their daughter has what could possibly be the worst rebellion for, you know, atheist communists that their daughter ends up becoming Christian. Oh, really? (laughs) I didn't know that. But yeah, it's just like, of course, the rebellion would be to be religious. And I think that the woman, Celine, in this movie, she specifically says that she doesn't necessarily believe in God, but she clearly believes that there's something else going on because she sort of gives into like little bits of mysticism all over the place. Yeah. And it's, it's not really in an organized way, but for her positive interaction with the fortune teller, And her returning to fixating on death, her own death, imagine getting on a plane and dying in a plane crash or going to a cemetery and thinking about all the people who died like a century ago. She kind of has a sort of memento mori kind of mindset, even if she wouldn't put it in those terms. Yeah, definitely. And they go to like what is very obviously a Catholic cemetery and Vienna's like Catholic heritage is impossible to miss in this movie. They, They go into a church at another point. Mm. They see a couple of friars, I think Franciscan friars walking by and they like poke fun at them. Not to their faces, just like a little idle joking. But this movie has like kind of a little fascination with Catholicism. Like something's going on there and and they don't know what to make of it, but they know it's it somehow keeps intruding into their lives. You know, it's funny that I think it being an American, it is more obvious when you go to Europe, just how steeped Europe is in Catholicism. I guess I can't say that more generally. I haven't been to the more Protestant countries. Like I've never been to Germany. So I don't know if this feels the same way there. Mm -hmm. But certainly in France, and I've been to Budapest and some different places in Eastern Europe where it's like the Catholicism or the Eastern Orthodoxy is much more obvious. Yeah. You know, Spain too, where it's like the fact that it so deeply influenced the culture is inescapable, even though nowadays their cultures are largely secular. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, they probably don't even realize how much it sort of permeates the air of the, the cities. So I felt, it felt very, yeah. like, authentic in that way. And I mean, I guess I don't know if Linklater is, like, has some kind of Catholic interest in the same way that, you know, somebody like Terrence Malick is so obviously <laughs> obsessed with Catholicism without being Catholic. But it certainly feels like somebody who acknowledges the sort of metaphysical reality of 
Catholicism in Europe. Yeah. The only other work of his I've seen is Boyhood. And there's a lot of people wondering about transcendent reality there too. And I think they asked some questions about God in Boyhood. It's been a while, but in this, it's much more two people who have grown up in very secular, quote unquote, post-Christian worlds, trying to pick up the pieces almost. And, you know, they never quite do rediscover it, but they know they can't ignore it. Kind of piggybacking on that, they definitely seem like they can't ignore the reality of the nature of men and women. I feel like that comes up Mm. so, so many times in this movie. I mean, very directly, they had like a long conversation later on in the movie that I think kind of kicks off where she goes on a little bit of a rant about how like, I think feminism was invented by men basically to get more sex. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, wow, this could definitely have kind of come out of some modern, like conservative think tank that (laughs) this is like... But just like her musing about it, and she's clearly been brought up in a sort of pro-feminist mm-hmm. way because she also mentions later that like she was sort of raised and feels a lot of pressure to look like a strong, independent woman. But like the number one desire of her heart is just to be loved and like she doesn't necessarily care about the career thing and how like conflicted she feels about that. Because at the same time, like, she is a strong personality with an extreme intellectual aptitude. So she could very easily go down that path of sort of ignoring love and retracing the steps of the typical, like, successful mid-20th century man who kept the kids at home and really cared about his job. Like, she could do that if she wanted to. I wish I could have talked to, like, a European friend before we talked here because... It felt a little Americanized to me at this point because the whole women being turned into men as like a sort of feminist posture doesn't really seem to be the case when I, you know, this my sort of casual online interactions with sort of the Francophile world feels like there's more of an appreciation for like the mystery of woman that doesn't seem to be captured in her discussions about her character and especially for like a French woman. So I'm not sure like how true this is to a French woman as opposed to like an American woman that conversation felt extremely familiar and relevant. So there's like a part of me that kind of wishes either that we could have talked to somebody or like if it's true that that's not really how a French woman would think I would have loved to have like a real French woman's perspective on femininity and like would they have the same kind of levels of guilt about wanting to have a more traditionally feminine posture. No, I think I think you're onto something there about like Frenchness sort of symbolizing womanliness or sim- symbolizing like a real difference between the sexes. Cuz like with the Germans at the beginning, you know, the German language is stereotypically like associated with like strife and conflict and French is like the language of love, like l'amour, like, you know, we, we just have to look like look at Pepe Le Pew or something from the Looney Tunes cartoons. Like that's the stereotype. And then English is sort of a bit of both and torn between those two extremes. Right. And I think her coming from a French background, but speaking English is sort of bringing that perspective to English. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so that was like my only little critique about that was just like, I'm not sure that this feels like a very French argument to be made, but I think certainly as an American who grew up a little bit behind them, you know, we're more children of the 90s. I definitely get that feeling. Julie Delpy is French. And like she and Ethan Hawke were involved in the production of this movie. They weren't just 
handed lines and told what to say, and that was the end of it. There was a lengthy, like, rehearsal process where she and Ethan Hawke were kind of hammering the story out with the writers, with Richard Linklater and the co-writer Kim Creason. You know, it's not, like, proof positive that the character is accurately reflecting a French mindset, but it, there was a French person in the room when they were writing the character. Okay, fair. Yeah, and then I think on the on the side of really delving into the psyche of men, the thing I found most interesting was when Ethan Hawke talks about how, on the one hand, he could see himself being a dad and really, like, loving that role in his life, and yet he has this desire basically to prove himself and to be really excellent at something in like a non-familial way, which feels to me just like a very typical masculine like desire of the heart to sort of like prove yourself and prove your worth in a sort of externally focused way. Anytime she looks away, and he's like trying to figure out, okay, well, what do, am I going to like buy her a drink? What do I do next? He always has this look on his face like, okay, how am I going to impress her? How am I going to like really, you know, get her attention? Like that kind of thing. So yeah. And I loved her counter to him too, because if the author is not hinting around at religion, he certainly has insight into just like the human heart because she counters that she used to work with an older guy, which I laughed when she said that this older gentleman was 52. She says that he basically said that he thought his whole life about his work and he got to his 50s and he felt really sad about the fact that he had never given anything of himself to another person. That's really And how like, that's like the real meaning of life, which, you know, Ethan Hawke's character didn't really seem to find that very compelling, but she did and I did, uh, you know, certainly like, I think as a Catholic, but even just as somebody who understands there's more to life than work. I mean, it resonated for me, too. My very first job out of school was working in finance in New York. And I had a boss who was a woman who was like in her early 30s. Now that I think about it, I'm like, oh, my gosh, she was like maybe my age. (laughs) And she had just had her third kid. And I remember she was like on the phone when I like came into her office, like waiting for her to give me feedback on something. And she like put down the phone and she just like looked me in the eye. She's like, don't let anybody tell you not to have kids because it's the best part of my life. I was like, wow. Wow. I was like dropping life advice out of nowhere. (laughs) But it was interesting to see like in an environment where certainly most people were very concerned about their sort of financial future or, you know, doing the job while she was like, yeah, whatever. This stuff is like not the most important thing that you can do. That's really cool. I was very impressionable as a, you know, 23 year old, which is (laughs) the age that these two are supposed to be. So. And so it's pretty obvious, like from the outset that he's trying to have sex with her, but also that he has romantic feelings for her. She knows that this is imminent because she jokes about, oh, isn't that the, the male fantasy, like traveling abroad in some city and like finding a French girl to go to bed with? That is not how she phrases it. (laughs) And for the most part, she articulates her attitude pretty well. You feel like you need to say what her attitude is. If she has this encounter and they they part ways and they haven't had sex, she's not going to be thinking about him and afraid of who else he's with and that kind of thing. But if they have sex, that's all she's going to think about. Right? Is that? Yeah, which is so, so insightful. Yeah, I mean, she basically says, if we sleep together... All I'll think about is like who else you're sleeping with and I'll become sort of obsessed, which, you know, I recently read Christine Emba's book, Rethinking Sex, and she talks about this a lot. She does a lot of 
interviews with young women and so many of them talk about the fact that not just that sex changes things, but it sort of, you become a bit obsessive about like all the things that are happening between these people. And I thought that it was so interesting that this movie from, you know, the mid nineties was just insightful enough to be like, look, if we sleep together, it completely changes the character of how we think about this day that we just had, which was a wonderful day. And it didn't need to be capstoned with sex. And it changes things if that's what we do, because that's what I'm going to remember. Which, you know, kind of getting all back to like the sentimentality and things that we talked about during our discussion of JP2's love and responsibility is like the way in which the physical sort of can overwhelm our ability to see somebody with clarity. I mean, you even see it in the movie earlier on when they have their first kiss, which is like, you know, this super romantic. They're at the top of a Ferris wheel overlooking the city. Yeah, he's very smooth about it. Yeah. And so the rest of the movie, you see them kind of being a little giddy with each other. And in that way where it's just like, all you can think about is the kiss afterwards. And it's interesting because I think you can see the conflict it presents almost immediately. Like the very next scene after that first kiss There's a scene where they're having coffee, I guess, and there's a palm reader going around, you know, offering to read people's palms. And so she comes up to them. And after the encounter, Jesse is really cynical about it. He's like, oh, gosh, she'll tell you anything. Like, that's basically doing astrology. Like, you might as well have read it in the newspaper. And you can see on Celine's face, like, she's really offended by his cynicism. And I think it's that moment of discord where you're like, wait. I gave this person something and like we did something intimate and now I feel really conflicted about the fact that like I have this sentimental connection to him because we kissed and I'm finding something out about his character that I really disapprove of. Am I sure he's actually good? Yeah, like, oh shoot. Side note, he is. He's right about the palm reader. (laughs) (laughs) 100% agree. As a horoscope hating guy, I guess I have to say that. But it's it's not just that he's being rational about that. He's very cynical generally. And it's not so much he's understanding the truth about that. It's just that's his posture towards a lot of life. Yeah. Well, and to people who are seemingly trying to make money off of, let's call it art, <laughs> right. but... It feels like there are lots of little instances where he expresses this cynicism towards people who are more or less asking for you to pay them to do some kind of art. So, like, there's a guy who writes a poem Yeah, the for poetry them. guy. Yeah, he's like, give me a word. And he's like, this guy has this poem already written, and he just puts the word that you tell him into it. And again, Celine is so offended by his, like, inability to just enjoy the moment, which also felt like a very, like, male-female kind of dichotomy. That one's interesting because the poem actually wins him over initially. Like, his initial reaction is like, oh, that was beautiful. Good luck, man. Like, oh, well, how much money do I have in my pocket that I can give you? And then he, like, collects himself after 30 seconds and he's like, oh, wait, you know what? That probably wasn't as good as I thought it was. This is a little too good to be true. That, yeah, he had that poem pre-written. Like, oh, you, did you really write that? Yeah. He didn't just come up with that on the spot. But yeah, so that cynicism comes out like a lot after their initial kiss. And so that's part of her acknowledging that this like physical intimacy really does have irrevocable personal significance that you can't just brush off. And you can't just pretend like it's purely bodily activity with no no moral ramifications. But when she's expressing all this and it's like 3 a.m. and they're in some park alone. Your defenses yeah, are down. Yeah, your defenses are down. 
apparently when this movie was originally released, people were not certain because they cut away. They don't they don't actually show them sleeping together. They cut away and set, and it's a few hours later and they're walking around shortly before sunrise. And apparently fans were, were uncertain whether or not they actually slept together. I don't think it's... It's not particularly ambiguous now looking back, right? I think it seems pretty clear that they... They had sex outside of marriage, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like, she no longer has her sweater on under her dress. And I feel like it's sort of in the same way. I think the movie does a great job when they've kissed. The, like, interaction between them, I think, kind of changes. And the sort of, I don't know, energy in the scenes sort Mm -hmm. of change. And there's a different kind of frenetic energy, I think, when they're... And it's also, you know, partly like, our time is coming to an end and all of that, but... It feels more acute in a way that was missing from earlier yeah. scenes. Right. And then when the, so when they're going to the train station at the end of the movie and we have arrived at sunrise, they have to go their separate ways because he's got to catch his flight back to the U.S. and she has to catch her train back to Paris. When they're walking to the train platform, I, I'll never forget the looks on their faces. The energy in that scene is incredible because they look like they're going to the electric chair. They are so dreading this moment where they have to say goodbye. Because they'd known that they were going to have to face this moment the entire time. And they still got attached to each other anyway. And they still don't even know each other's last names or addresses or phone numbers or anything. And so now they're really out of time. The train is about to leave and they got to figure out what to do next. They decide, okay, we'll meet back here six months from last night when we met. We'll meet right back here. And that's basically where they leave it. And you just see them going their separate ways and reflecting on the experience, basically. And that's where the movie ends. Also not a thing that would happen in a movie in 2020. Cell phone numbers would have been exchanged. Yeah, definitely. I saw a great comment. Guys, they didn't have cell phones (laughs) or social media the whole time. Wow, isn't that refreshing? That is wild. Because up until that point, you think their choice is either somehow start a relationship over a great distance, move move to the other one's continent, or never see each other again. And that's their compromise. It's not, it's not any of those. It's just meet back here in six months. I did sort of like that at the end, they have a sort of acknowledgement of the fact that like right now we have to make a choice to put ourselves on mm-hmm. the line. And the fact that like neither one of them sort of wanted to be the one to do it, despite the like intense intimacy that they've had over the previous 24 hours, to be the one who says, I take it back. Because earlier in the movie, they've basically made the agreement that like, yep, we're just going to like have this wild day and then we'll never (laughs) see each other again. And it will always be like a crazy That was the agreement at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And so to be the one who sort of is like, I take it back. I like my feelings have changed. I want this to end differently. And the like need to take a risk. And I thought that was like very genuine. Also just like a good kind of, I don't hate to say this is like a life lesson that feels sort of trite, but I know sort of encapsulated the like, risky feeling of love because in a way they've set it up where it's low risk right where it's like none of this matters if we're not going to see each other tomorrow or ever again and so suddenly to be the one who raises the stakes feels more genuine to the idea of love because like love is real and potentially forever and like this person could now hurt you yeah i mean of course they're both like wildly (laughs) in love with each other and so it's all fine but Yeah. I guess it wouldn't make a very good ending to the to the movie or set up for a trilogy if one was like, uh, yeah, I'm not, not feeling it. 
So is 23-year-old Kara, if she's meeting Ethan Hawke on a train, is there any chance you would want to keep the conversation going with him? Just like that guy? Uh, like, am I interested in somebody like this guy at 23? Yeah, like, do you think he's bringing anything to the table? So I'll say that 23-year-old Kara was maybe not the person that you should be asking relationship advice from. <laughs> and probably yeah would have been super into this idea <laughs> okay i'm trying to think if like 23 year old andrew would have would have gone for celine i i don't know she seems like kind of pedantic but maybe that's the pot calling the kettle black oh interesting i think you would have been intrigued by someone like her i guess i don't know about you at 23 maybe at this age if she seemed catholic friendly i think you would be more like this is interesting yeah. interesting yeah that's true I probably would have had the the Catholic litmus test, I think, would have been. Would had have been. she passed that one, I think you probably would have been like, interesting, interesting. Because, I mean, she's like yeah, contemplating right. the right things. My only like qualm, I suppose, with Celine is that she's very much a like 90s pixie dream girl. She's perfect and a little bit like overly romantic, but also somehow she's not actually the manic pixie dream girl. But you know what I mean? That's sort of like overly romanticized unreal woman of the 90s but she i mean she feels genuine in the sense that like she is really smart and ambitious but like has a lot of anxiety and is like you know kind of like uncertain about what she wants to do with herself you got me thinking about the sequel and how she is in that one because she's like in some respects more like that and in some respects the opposite of that so it's interesting that you brought that up because music plays a little bit of a different role, you know, and this is just kind of in the background. And, you know, because music is like a big thing with the Manic, Manic Pixie Dream Girl archetype. That part of it sort of comes into play. Yeah, a I mean, bit. like, I assume it's because writers are into that kind of person. Yes. Like, writers <laughs> are the ones who write movies like this. Um, yeah. It feels hard to not to not have some elements of that girl in these movies. And not to spoil too, too much, but in the sequel, one of these two people does become a writer. So You know what? Write what you know. Write what you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so apparently this is based on a real encounter that Richard Linklater did have, oh, I think. I think he, he really did have this kind of dream first date with a stranger. I don't remember the specifics, but it's not totally fabricated he is writing a little bit of what he knows it's funny because it, it feels very familiar as you know thinking about my college era and i i did study abroad in australia and you go and travel and the kind of weird space you live in when you're traveling by yourself and this sort of you kind of feel like unencumbered yeah your openness to just like going out and making friends with people and like yeah you go drinking and have these like deep philosophical conversations you know in quotes here, people, deep philosophical conversations. <laughs> it felt, <laughs> felt very important to us at the time. Do we have any more thoughts about what these two characters had to say about love? Because I feel like they said a lot and we could have honestly picked any random 15 second snippet as a soundbite and it would have been relevant to the show. <laughs> to me, I think the movie is more about kind of picking up ideas that are resonant and it doesn't give a whole lot of solid conclusions yes i agree with that i feel like they're contrasting experiences is an interesting way of like exploring an idea and then it feels like he does the exploring and sort of leaves you to think about things that are it's like what do you think about this 
is it interesting to you? You can mull it over. <laughs> They're moving on. And it's one of those, I'm not sure if you're meant to suppose that they continue to talk about these things or if that's the level of thinking that they're doing about it too is like, huh, I sometimes think about my messed up childhood or the nature of men and women and how it really works. So yeah, I don't, it feels like it's sort of intentional. Like it's not trying to lead you anywhere other than to bring up interesting truths about men and women. Which they continue in the sequel before sunset, which Kara, I don't know about you. Are you ready to watch the sequel? I am. Let's do it. Yes. And fortunately, we don't have to wait nine years for it to come out because it's already out. So <laughs> we will uh, we'll come back to the Before Trilogy next time with Before Sunset. Can't wait. So, Kara, thanks for joining us. As always, thanks for having me. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Bye now and God love you. <laughs>